Hello, and welcome to the Super 70 Podcast. Episode 5, Back to the Future. Super 70 is a podcast meant to sync to play along with the film we discuss. You don't have to, though, and can go on listening without watching anything. I would, however, recommend that you watch the film we are discussing before listening to the Super 70 podcast. You can download the commentary from iTunes, SoundCloud, or my website at www.thatdylandavis.com. I'm Dylan Davis. I will be using the 2015 Blu-ray release of Back to the Future, which should be the same length as a 2002 DVD release and a 30th anniversary special. It is also available on YouTube and Amazon Prime for free, and also Hulu in certain regions. If you press play on any of the DVDs now, and for you Amazon and Hulu people, wait now, this podcast should sync with the rest of the film. Welcome to one of the most revered films of all time. Welcome to what some people call perfection. In fact, 30 years later, the screenplay for Back to the Future is used at UCLA Film School as a case study to describe the perfect script. And just so you know, I am that kid. I'm the kid who went to see Back to the Future three times. I'm the kid who watched Family Ties every week and every night in syndication. I'm that kid who asked his parents to buy him a skateboard after seeing Michael J. Fox in this movie. I'm that kid who got caught holding on to the back of a postal service mail truck and was bitched out in front of my parents. I'm the kid who wanted to learn how to play guitar, and one of the first songs I learned was Johnny B. Good. I'm that kid who wanted a red vest, a jean jacket, and a striped shirt with suspenders. I'm that kid who had to have a Sony Walkman the Christmas after Back to the Future came out, and my first tape was the Monkees' Greatest Hits. The second tape was the Back to the Future soundtrack. The third was Sports by Huey Lewis in the News. The opening shot is a memorable one. Everyone remembers Doc Brown's garage and the Rube Goldberg machine that feeds his dog, Einstein. And it focuses on the clocks. We're given a quick glance to know that Doc Brown's mansion was burned down, probably in his experiments. And remember Edison and Franklin and Einstein here. This shot is two minutes and six seconds long. Franklin discovered electricity, Edison patented the first long-lasting incandescent light bulb, and of course, Einstein is responsible for the growth of quantum physics, which time travel theory is based on. The stolen plutonium plot drop here rolls to the Rube Goldberg machine, and what we're going to see essentially is a series of very practical, mechanics-driven Machines, and you will be amazed, or you should be amazed, that there seems to be no computer and thus no computer programming. Nowhere in Doc's garage or in the time machine or even here in this robotic arm is seemingly given a function with programming. This type of mechanics without written systems is direct from Edison. Relays and switches is how everything works. So without any direction, the machines do not know that Einstein and thus Doc are not here. And this is the danger of a machine that you set to task and you don't look after. You don't give it boundaries. And this is how the trouble starts in this movie. 
And from the beginning, Zemeckis is fucking with you. When Marty walks in, the clocks are at 7.53. When they ring, it's 8 o'clock, 7 minutes. But only 4 minutes of screen time has passed. We're going to look at shot structure of this whole movie. One of the most wonderful aspects of this film is that it's filled with these long shots. The third shot is 30 seconds and records Marty's entrance. In this case, Marty McFly is played here by the wonderful actor we all love, Eric Stoltz. And shots that long are notoriously hard to complete. Everything has to be perfect, including the two hardest variables, which are the actor's performance and the mechanical operating of the camera by the cinematographer to make sure that everything is in focus, etc. So minute shots are rare. Two-minute shots are even more rare. Three-minute shots are almost impossible. Makes you wonder how Hitchcock and Orson Welles were doing these 10-minute reels, all-one shots. Shots like that are incorrectly correlated with great directors. Everyone assumes that if you have a shot this long, then the film must be great. This is incorrect. And I will point to the film, what is it, Brown Bunny, Blue Bunny? That's, that's evidence enough, and I move on. They did use metal picks in the 80s. Eddie Van Halen used metal picks, and he blames that for giving him tongue cancer, not being a chain smoker. So despite being seen highly commercial film as something so mainstream, Back to the Future is in fact a strange film because it does what you're never supposed to do in Hollywood, and that is to cross genres. If you want to crash course on genre movies, get Grant's book, Film Genre, part five or four, I believe is the latest edition. It's a wonderful and informative book on genre. Read that and come back here. 41 second shot with Marty on the phone. So this is a genre film, but it is a strange genre film. There was a time in the 80s when science fiction films got a lot of traction in a post-Star Wars world. You had The Last Starfighter, Explorers, Repo Man, Flight of the Navigator, Space Camp. And some of these were not outer space films, but they became very in vogue. Ghostbusters, Highlander, Gremlins, Time After Time, Back to the Future fits right in here, kind of like a a Rod Serling Twilight Zone type of existence. And in this genre, you have a subgenre of science fiction teen films like Weird Science, The Goonies, My Science Project, Real Genius, and Back to the Future fits into that subgenre. So this is a teen pick, and it's about a teen going back to the real era of the teen pick, the 1950s. And the 50s saw tons of teen picks. The Blackboard Jungle, Rock Around the Clock, and most famous, of course, being the James Dean classic Rebel Without a Cause. And the 80s will mirror this after two decades of Hollywood almost ignoring teens. Porky's, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Revenge of the Nerds, The Breakfast Club, Sixteen Candles, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So this film is definable. It's a teen pick, it's a sci-fi, it's a sci-fi teen pick. And that sounds outrageous, but in reality it places the film in a comfortable surrounding that we as an audience can define. And those of us who were younger who don't remember 1955 did in fact see that time period as another world or another dimension. We understood that it was a real period despite the fact that this is a science fiction film. Take a look at the state of Hill Valley here, the famous town square that's on the Universal backlot. There's a used car sign on the left, which is an homage to Zemeckis' film with Jack Warden and Kurt Russell. It didn't make a lot of money and it put Zemeckis in the movie jail and we'll get back to that later. This shot is 56 seconds. Now it's over. And when Marty tells Strickland that history is going to change, 
Zemeckis is going to pull your leg again. Now, you know this is a time travel movie. You saw the trailers or the poster, so you think Marty is in on it, but he's not. So it's a fast one, like the clocks, which don't record the correct time and are off even in the film world, making Marty late. So this is a theme to the film. Marty is always late. He's late here. He's late to the dance. And he's late to tell Doc about his death. And he's even late getting back to the future. And he has a time machine. The marketing campaign around Huey Lewis and the news, Power of Love, and the use of the song in the film is genius. And I'm sure everybody knows by now that the teacher who is judging Marty's band, the Pinheads, as too loud and possibly obnoxious, is none other than Huey Lewis himself. Here's an hourglass shot of Strickland and Marty. Hourglass representing what? That's right, time. Here's Huey Lewis, who showed up on the red carpet. I love this band here. Marty passes as he goes on stage. Very typical of any band on MTV back then. Huey Lewis and the News were a breakout band from the Bay Area of California, and they had an enormous hit with their album Sports before this film came out. Lewis was writing pretty high about this time. He just won a lawsuit against Ray Parker Jr. for stealing the riff and the beat of the song I Want a New Drug off the sports album for the theme from Ghostbusters. And he's here. We're going to take a look back at Hill Valley when he and Jennifer rock across, walk across the square. And we're going to learn what we can from this shot. We've already seen the used car lot. So you have to wonder why isn't there a new car lot? We see a movie theater in the background, but it's converted to a church. We see the Goldie Wilson van, of course. And down the block on the left-hand side is another movie theater, which you can't see in this shot, but you will in the future, and it's going to be playing a porno film called Orgy American Style. This shot is 48 seconds. A lot of the buildings look very run down, and the look is not very pleasant. Even the clock tower doesn't work. The cars are not too impressive. Lower middle class. Many of them are from the late 70s or early 80s. Hill Valley does not look very clean. In fact, it looks like a dump. All the really cool businesses that you will see in 1955 are gone, and we assume that they have all gone out to the Twin Pines Mall with the rest of American businesses. Marty coveting this truck here. The town looks pretty run down, and obviously they haven't been running the place wise for a few decades because the clock tower hasn't been working in 30 years. So they don't have a very good tax base or a very wealthy one, or perhaps they can't elect competent people there. This is very disturbing, as we will see later, there are two parallels in contemporary politics going on here. There is a realization that 1980s America is really scummy. There's graffiti, and generally speaking, we're not impressed with Hill Valley, especially when we see it here. There's a bum, for instance, on the park bench in the town square who is older than Methuselah, but he's not there in 1955. And he is there when Marty gets back and he crashes the time machine into the porno theater and he says everything is back to normal and it looks great. Hmm. So we're not supposed to be impressed with contemporary society being run by a Republican president. In fact, we're supposed to be extremely sour over it, as if these evangelical Republican presidents who are putting porn into the squares of small-town America 
the most disturbing part about this is the mayor, Goldie Wilson, who is running for re-election for the umpteenth time. He's black. And we are supposed to think that progress is happening in this town. Social progress. We have a black mayor. But we look around Hill Valley and we're not sure. So what we have to do is go back in time and see Hill Valley in 1955 and see how things were then. And not even then are we very happy, but we become very familiar with the parallel here. I read the novelization of Back to the Future when I was a kid, and one of the things that stands out, I don't remember who the author was, it might have been Bob Gale or it could have been ghostwritten, but Marty takes the flyers from the lady at the at the bench and he to placate her, he says, I'll pass them out, and then he throws them into the dumpster. And it doesn't seem to me to ever be anything that Marty would do. It, it does seem like a, something that Biff would do. And I'm not sure if that ever made any version of the screenplays, but I'm glad they left it out. Robert Zemeckis, the director here, is considered a member of the New Hollywood. The term New Hollywood is used by most film historians to encapsulate a revolution in American cinema in which the first generation of young Turks to graduate from film courses in New York and Los Angeles start taking over the studio systems by storm. When we think of New Hollywood, we think of the graduate Nashville, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, starring Christopher Lloyd, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, Point Blank. And when we think of those directors, we think of Robert Altman, Peter Bogdanovich, Mel Brooks, Mike Nichols. When we think of cinematographers, we think of Laszlo Kovacs, Vilmos Zygmunt. We date it by pointing to Bonnie and Clyde, and we end it at Heaven's Gate, pretty dramatically. So the party could not last forever, mostly because the second generation who grew up on these films and dissected the grandmasters in the same institutions eventually took over as well. This has called for an extraordinary lack of creativity, the new, new Hollywood, and it includes directors like Joe Dante, the director of Gremlins, and it's because they're grouped after the generation that includes George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Famous joke here in the hallways when I was a kid, McFly! Back to the Future was released 4th of July weekend, 1985, and it faced down Rambo, Cocoon, Brewster's Millions, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and A View to a Kill, a James Bond film. It beat them all that weekend, that month, and that year, becoming the highest grossing film of 1985 and the eighth highest of the 1980s. It was shot for $19 million, and in its first week, it almost made its money back. By the end of 1985, it earned $190 million. The recent re-release of the film on the 30th anniversary is so set because it celebrates when Marty goes into the future in part two, raised this to $210 million. Zemeckis directed used cars, which is absolutely hysterical, but unfortunately it didn't do very well. After this, Bob Gale, who wrote a lot of scripts in the Spielberg circle, and this included John Milius, the writer for Apocalypse Now, he got this idea for a time-traveling teenager because he thought about what it would be like for him to go back and see his dad in high school. Nobody wanted it until Zemeckis directed Romancing the Stone, which Michael Douglas produced. And all of a sudden, Zemeckis can do anything he wants in Hollywood. So he chooses Back to the Future. Romancing was shot for $11 million, and it eventually made $79 million. So you can see the brilliant move that Michael Douglas made there. You can see the connection here. Spielberg ran over the script, much like he did with Gremlins and anything else he did at Amblin. Eric Stoltz was cast, and principal photography started in November of 1984. Look at all the consumer items here being turned into pop culture. You saw Burger King earlier, and then here Dave is in a Burger King outfit, Pepsi. 
we have these points of reference so that when Marty does see them or does not see them in the past, meaning 1955, we know that they are, even if by now, 30 years later, nobody else does. The Honeymooners, for example, I must have seen every episode because of Nickelodeon, but how many kids today have seen it? You don't need to see it because Zemeckis introduces it to you now before he hits you with the joke later about the reruns. And we see that George and Lorraine largely still live in 1955. Look at their clothes. They're frozen in time like most parents. We seem to get off the fashion train right about the time we have kids. A bit more about the production history. I'm going to go back and forth between scene analysis and anything that pops in my head. So how does Zemeckis get from used cars to Back to the Future? Of course, romancing the stone. But we have to consider the power of the almighty Spielberg. And I'm not going to go into a biography of Spielberg, but you should know a few facts about the master. To date, folks, he has directed 30 features, and only three of them have not made money. 1941, which I'm sure won't shock anyone, AI, and Munich. That's a 10% failure rate, which in Hollywood is gold. But when you consider for a second that most of his films have made 10 times more money than most other films, that 10% no longer means anything. He's paid that off with his second film, Jaws, many times over. So by this time, 1984, Universal Studios was Spielberg's bitch. Amblin Entertainment went from a single trailer in 1973 to a complex the size of Skywalker Ranch in 1989. 40% of Universal's revenue went to Spielberg. 2% of Universal's theme park tickets went to Steven Spielberg. And it's not just the movies he's made to this point. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.E.T., The Color Purple. It's the films that he's greenlit by this time as producer at Universal. Poltergeist, Gremlins, Fandango, Goonies. All of these were huge moneymakers. Not just a little bit of cash, but a lot of cash. In the case of Gremlins, which Joe Dante directed, and he was raised by Roger Corman, the film cost $12 million and Universal greenlit it only because St. Stephen gave it his blessing and they wanted to please him. They wrote off the $12 million for Gremlins because they wanted him to crank out Empire of the Sun. Okay, so Gremlins, that bullshit nightmare of a film that everyone loves now and everyone at Universal hated then, made its money back in one weekend. And when they re-released it the following year, it made another $5 million. To date, Gremlins has made $153 million. And that's just one film that Steven Spielberg looked at, the script, the director, the whole effort, and said, wow, that's a challenging film that can really accomplish a lot. And Universal sighed and said, oh, the shit that we have to put up with from Steven just to get our $100 million out of his next film, we have to do crap like this. And look, it was gold. And look at what Joe Dante has done since. The Explorers, which is flawed, I know, but it's still good. The Burbs, and now he's burning up TV with Hawaii Five-O. So Zemeckis and Gale put this together, the time-traveling teenager, and they're going around trying to sell the movie and turn around, which means if the studio would buy it, it would be only for the money put into it so far, and they would be happy. And who looks at it and says, wow, we should really do this. This is quite the idea. Spielberg does. He's the one who gets the fires burning. He didn't write the script. He didn't direct the script. He didn't cast it. He didn't do anything other than say, wow, Bob, that's a great idea. Run with it. And then told Universal, get this guy some money. And that's his power in that town, and that's why people listen to him, and that's why artists love him. I love this shot of the DeLorean getting off the truck. I was about 10 or 11 when this came out, and I didn't know what a DeLorean was, but 
when the Goldwing doors opened, it looked like some Italian race car or UFO that you would see, or maybe something on some episode of Miami Vice. It is impressive. And then Christopher Lord, of course, making his entrance as Doc Brown, a fantastic film entrance. He was previously in Taxi with Danny DeVito, who was in Romancing the Stone with Michael Douglas, and Andy Kaufman, and Judd Hirsch, and a million other fine actors, Mary Lou Henner. My favorite role, I think, that Christopher Lloyd has ever done isn't actually Doc Brown. It's when he plays Schultz, the Nazi guard in Mel Brooks' film To Be or Not To Be. Eric Stoltz was cast as Marty McFly. He was dressed for Marty McFly. He was hot off a mask, a film he did for Peter Bogdanovich and starred Cher and Sam Elliott. In essence, it is a new Hollywood film. Stoltz is one of my favorite actors, especially his work in the 80s, which may have typecast him a bit as time went on. His role of Lance in Pulp Fiction, I'm sure, was a way to escape this, and he nailed it. Unfortunately, as shooting went on with Back to the Future, Zemeckis and Bob Gale slowly came to the conclusion that Stoltz wasn't right for the part. Gale has been very clear about the whole matter in interviews in which this comes up. He said several times that everything Zemeckis asked Stoltz to do, he did, as instructed, and to a T. He hit his marks, he said his lines, and he said them the way that Zemeckis wanted them to be said. Unfortunately, this does not seem to have helped. If you're wrong for the part, then you're wrong for the part. It doesn't matter how good you are. Orson Welles is a heavy. He plays the heavy, and he's great at it. He doesn't play the lawyer in Touch of Evil. Chuck Heston does, because Welles is not that type of actor. Apparently, a lot of the humor wasn't coming across from Stoltz, or it just looked off. Christopher Lloyd said that someone announced the switch in the lunchroom, and many actors wanted off the project immediately because they could tell the ship was sinking. Everyone was shocked, because replacing your lead actor after a month of shooting is rare in the movie business. Many films are hinged on the lead actor and shot in certain ways because of them. So switching gears this far into the game was not seen as a good omen. As it happens, it turned out to be huge bank. So in all fairness to Stoltz, what could have been the problem was that Zemeckis already had Michael J. Fox in mind for the role, and they had already asked NBC, and NBC said no. He was neck deep in family ties at the time. So they refused. Zemeckis had to cast someone. He settled on Eric Stoltz. Months went by before principal photography started. And then five weeks of principal photography went by before Zemeckis and Gale gave up on Stoltz and convinced Universal to go back to NBC and ask very nicely for Fox. This they did, and NBC set down a ton of conditions that... Universal had no room to maneuver on. Here's the famous shot by Industrial Light and Magic. Boom! Simply amazing. So Fox had to finish all his scenes for Family Types every day before he went to Universal. Nothing at NBC could suffer because of the film. Universal could have him on weekends, but if you were called, he had to leave the set to make up whatever NBC needed him for before he could return. And then Universal was responsible for his transportation. And that's not really a big deal because the NBC studio is right down the street from the Universal lot. It's funny how the license plate is steaming hot, but when the DeLorean shows up, it's ice cold. So this sounds like a, a crippling deal, but when you think about how Zemeckis now had to make up five weeks of filming 
with a lead actor who's in almost every single scene, and he could only have him nights and weekends. This is more than crippling. This is near disaster-like material. The film should not have survived. Instead, what happened was a repositioning of the entire working structure of the film hierarchy around Fox. That is astounding. You talk about switching gears. This is really switching gears. Made a time machine out of a DeLorean? It's going to come back here in a big ball of smoke. Which is amazing. Kerpow! Fox got to the NBC set around daybreak. Every morning before everyone else, usually in hopes of finishing some scenes on Family Ties early. He could be cut loose at 8 p.m. on some nights. A limo would take him over to the back of the To the Future set at the Universal lot where he and Zemeckis would shoot nonstop, starting with all the scenes Stoltz had already shot. Some of the key scenes are set at night, including the time-traveling experiment here, the shootout at the mall. So this wound up being copathetic, but many scenes, including Marvy, Marty arriving at the Peabody farm, were changed to night because they simply did not have enough daylight on weekends to shoot everything that they needed. Fox would be driven home between 3 and 6 in the morning or sometimes driven straight back to the NBC lot where he would try to sleep before going on to Family Ties. On Fridays, Fox would arrive at the Universal set at night and shoot all night, all into Saturday, and not get sleep until late Saturday night. He had early call on Sunday, and he had to shoot all Sunday and late into Sunday night before starting everything over again at NBC. So it's amazing that Fox plays Marty with such energy. I can't imagine most people doing what he did, and he did it because he knew what the film was. He knew it was going to be a hit. He could see it every day, and visually the film is much more interesting than anything Fox has done in his career, and that includes Casualties of War, which is no slouch in film style. So unless you see Marty in sunlight crossing Hill Valley Square or in sunlight getting hit with Grandpa's car or in sunlight hanging laundry with George, all other shots, including in the school, everything in the garage, everything at the dance, all inside shots not requiring sunlight, were all done at night at breakneck speed in a sound studio to catch up. Despite this, Back to the Future was completed on time and on budget. And Zemeckis now gets to do whatever he wants. Over the years, there have been some stills leaked to the media that show Eric Stoltz as Marty. There's a famous one of him holding the video camera and standing next to Christopher Lloyd. At first, it just looked strange, but after you study the photo and the other images, you do get the sense that Stoltz is out of place. It looks kind of like a fish out of water to me, and perhaps that's why we don't have any more stills or moving images. Bob Gale did an interview for the 30th anniversary, and again, he was very succinct about the footage. He wanted to release it. He wanted people to see it, even perhaps cut the footage into an existing film so people could gauge for themselves. But what he did not want in any way, shape, or form was to embarrass Eric Stoltz because, and he was very adamant about this again, Stoltz didn't do anything wrong. It wasn't his fault. Sometimes you're miscast. And it's probably very lucky for everyone's career, and especially including such a talented actor like Eric Stoltz, that he was replaced. The film could have reversed everything he had worked so hard to complete, especially with Mask. It could have ended his career, and instead... It's just a footnote. And I see what Gail is saying. He doesn't want Stoltz to turn into a joke. If you pay attention to pop culture now, you'll see a lot of this going on. In the TV show Fringe, there's an alternate universe where a lot of wacky stuff goes on because different decisions are being made 
guns fire differently. Airplane black boxes don't exist because everything is uploaded to a satellite. Zeppelins are still flying because the Hindenburg never crashed. The Statue of Liberty is made of bronze instead of copper. And there's one flashback. There's this movie marquee in the background, and it clearly says Back to the Future starring Eric Stoltz. And we can laugh and say, oh, well, they couldn't get Michael J. Fox. And as soon as you make that joke, you make it at an expense of a talented actor like Eric Stoltz. And that's exactly what Gail does not want. It's admirable that they're not showing the footage. They'd easily pick up 10 more million on a limited edition Blu-ray right now. And they're intentionally not doing it because it wouldn't be fair to Eric Stoltz. Find kindness like that in Hollywood these days. So, while they're loading the plutonium, a quick note on Libya, which we bombed in the 80s. It was actually after Back to the Future was released, April 1986. There was a bomb that went off in a discotheque in Berlin. Two U.S. soldiers were killed and the bombers were traced back to Libya. The U.S. ordered airstrikes that killed 15 people, including, yes, dictator Omar Gaddafi's adopted 15-month-old daughter. So if you saw Back to the Future in 1985, all you knew by then was that in 1981, two Libyan jets fired on U.S. aircraft in the Mediterranean Sea and were duly handed their ass by U.S. Navy pilots. In 1982, Libyan crude oil was banned from U.S. markets, something that we should be doing to the Saudis right now. And exports to Libya were prohibited. In early 1985, the U.S. cut off all Libyan monies in Western banks. And this would be enough to make the Libyans specifically a very good, if a very two-dimensional, bad guy for the film. After the film, in 1988, Libyans would be specifically blamed for the bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 over Lockerbie, Scotland, which killed hundreds of people. So the idea before the movie was not as powerful as the idea after the movie that mad terrorists from Libya are going around stealing plutonium and asking a mad scientist to build a bomb for them. It's, it wasn't really outside the realm of possibility. I had a Kodak stand like that uh, in the mall near my house. Doc grabs his gun here. It looks like it's from the Wild West. It's probably that old. It's fitting that it doesn't work. And it's convenient considering part three of the trilogy. And why the DeLorean? We'll get into some of it. But this is a teen pick and teens love cars. Cars are an American dream. And this is an American teen pick dream. Cars represent mobility. And of course, Marty, who can't afford a Toyota and whose practical wishes are for his dad's total Buick, is now besought with a DeLorean. And I don't know how wonderful close-up of Fox there when the camera pans in, cut away, cut back. I don't know how people came to associate the car itself with drug smuggling. It's a mystery to me, given the power of the internet. John DeLorean, who was an engineer, he first worked at Chrysler before he moved on to Packard after the Second World War, and then he went to GM to design cars for Pontiac. He had huge influence in the design of the Pontiac Grand Turismo Olomogato, which hit the streets in 1964 and quickly gained a reputation as the first real muscle car. He headed the design team on the Camaro, the Firebird, the Le Mans, the Monte Carlo, the Grand Prix, the Corvette, the Vega, the Nova. He did not fit in with GM very well. And in 1973, he formed his own company, the DeLorean Motor Company, DMC. Renault 
built a car factory in Northern Ireland with money from the British government. The engine was developed by Renault and Peugeot. Volvo and Lotus designed the body and chassis. And this is why the DeLorean looks kind of like a Lotus from a Roger Moore James Bond film. By the car, excuse me, by the time the car rolled off the assembly line, it was 1981, eight years after the company was formed. And so it was $175 million in debt. DMC made 9,000 cars in 21 months before Parliament confiscated the factory in February of 1982. And by this time, DeLorean, like a lot of successful middle-aged men, and the Hollywood producer Robert Evans would be a direct correlation as a relative example. He had a cocaine habit. Boom! Scarecrow. For timing purposes. Into the barn. I guess we're going to have to get back to DeLorean in a little bit. Old Man Peabody comes out. And effectively what you see in this shot is bringing 50 sci-fi into frame Marty's entrance. So, Tales from Space, the comic book, Space Zombies from Pluto, and the DeLorean does look like a UFO. And when Marty gets out, he's wearing a radiation suit. He looks like an alien. But in reality, folks, Marty is an alien. He's not from this time. He's not from this place. So this is very fitting. And the sci-fi is all tied in here in strange ways. So to go back to the DeLorean for a second... I have no idea why 88 miles per hour was chosen for the target speed. 88 has no reference except the neo-Nazi movement. H is the eighth letter of the alphabet, and the official way to close any government document in Nazi Germany was to sign it Heil Hitler. So as you can imagine, this is not very popular after the war, and even more so today. So neo-Nazis normally hide their allegiance in code by signing 88 on whatever they think is important. They have it tattooed on their body. They put it on their Twitter handles and their gamer tags on Microsoft. So if you see 88 for life while you're playing Call of Duty, for example, now you know the gamer that you're playing hates blacks, Jews, Catholics, and pretty much anyone who doesn't look like Magda Goebbels. And so now going into a little bit of the future in Back to the Future when Marty sees Lion Estates for the first time. This might be some of the land that Doc had to sell in order to chase his dreams. But when you see this picture of Welcome to Lion Estates, it looks like the it looks like the Nuke Town map in Call of Duty Black Ops. I just kind of mentioned Black Ops. And it reminds me of Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. You know, Nuke the Fridge, the, the dummies, and a lot of the 1950s films that explore this fascination with 
nuclear technology in the 50s, like the Gamma People, Time Slip, Godzilla, of course, The Day the World Ended, The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues, The Monster from Green Hell, and, of course, The Atomic Kid. And he's got to hide it. So we'll go back to DeLorean a little bit. So he had this cocaine habit, and a neighbor and a casual friend of DeLorean's named James Hoffman, he heard DeLorean say that he needed $17 million to get the plant back from Parliament and start making cars again. So Hoffman pitched a scheme to DeLorean in which Hoffman would bring in 27 kilos of cocaine from Columbia, which DeLorean would then cut up and sell to his friends for $24 million. DeLorean was in desperation, and he said yes, and he didn't know that Hoffman was an FBI informant. So the movie theater now has Barbara Stanwyck and Ronald Reagan on it. And Hill Valley looks extremely different. There's no porn in the theater. The idea of service is different, as we can tell by the gas station. And this is back in time in which oil companies weren't seen as the evil, twisted, fascist mass murderers that they are viewed as today. Thus, the Texaco station. And it was common to see shell stations in movies up into the 1980s. I assume this all changed because of the Exxon Valdez. So this is the Universal lot, which I was at just last month. Thousands of films have been shot here. Gremlins, Bruce Almighty. And here's the famous shot of Marty looking at the clock tower. And the expression on his face, you know, he does feel like an alien. And he looks like an alien. And he'll go into the diner in a minute. And I'll get back to John DeLorean and James Hoffman. Well, he didn't know, DeLorean didn't know that Hoffman was getting squeezed because he himself had been busted on a drug trafficking charge and was trying to throw a big fish to the feds to save his own ass. The FBI got DeLorean on tape in a hotel room negotiating this deal, and they arrested him. And in October of 1982, he was charged with narcotics trafficking. However, the videotape of the drug bust found its way into the hands of Larry Flint, who leaked it to the press so that it was available before the trial started. And in the tape, it becomes glaringly evident that DeLorean doesn't actually know any of the terminology of being a drug dealer or even what to do with a suitcase full of cocaine. And it becomes very clear as the tape goes on that the FBI entrapped DeLorean using a career criminal to exploit the downfall of DeLorean's professional career. And this was a trap to get the car maker to make a desperate decision in a crunch. When this came out in the trial, he was acquitted, but by the time that happened, the company collapsed and he was finished. But every once in a while, when I'm talking to someone about this film, the novel idea comes up that somehow DeLorean was smuggling drugs in the cars and that he was producing. I've never been able to figure out how this is supposed to happen. Why would you smuggle cocaine from Columbia to Northern Ireland and put it into a car that's going to be shipped to the United States? Wouldn't it just be easier to smuggle it into the States directly? I, I don't know. You want a tab, you got to order something. So DeLorean fought dozens of lawsuits surrounding the car, and he declared personal bankruptcy in 1999. In order to live up to any type of comfort in retirement, he sold his huge estate in New Jersey to Donald Trump, 
who raised it and turned it into a golf course, kind of like Doc Brown possibly did with his estates. In 1995, a new company calling itself the DeLorean Motor Company opened in Humble, Texas, which is a suburb of Houston, and it acquired the name and trademark of the original company. It builds cars from new and old parts, original equipment, and reproductions that are made to order. Restored DeLoreans go to about $35,000, and from scratch, DeLoreans go for about $100,000. And if you want a time machine, which they can make with Mr. Fusion and all, you're looking at about $150,000. The original retail price in 1983 was $25,000. There's no separate models. Modifications were made during production and continued without the addition of modifiers. So into the diner, Marty goes where women in 1985 were doing jazzercise or some sort of aerobics that was popular in the 80s. They were probably doing Jane Fonda's workout or something. That was huge then. My mom had a tape. My dad burned it. So there's tons of fun here. If you know that Tab was a drink in the 80s, which I had to explain to my kids. And there's lots of father issues here, tons of them. From the get-go, Marty is more masculine than his father. And it was a master stroke of genius to cast Crispin Glover as George. George is a more formal name, but not too cool. Marty is cooler, short for Martin, we guess, but more suave. Marty is very capable of handling women, but not his mom. When he disturbs the time continuum and has to put it right, he has to ensure that he will exist in the future. So look at this. It's all shot here with Goldie in the center. Zemeckis pans out and then to the right to fit Goldie in. That would have been three different shots. So anyway, Marty's got to teach George how to be a man effectively by being more of a man than his father is. And he's also going to try to assert some jingoism by putting pressure on Lorraine in the front seat. But of course, we know by dance night that if Marty had been up to the task, he would have fucked Lorraine in the front seat of the Packard before Biff's first drink. But because she looks like she's wet and ready to go. And there's a backlash in feminism there. Nothing is right in 1985, but in the 50s, you hear Lorraine talk about how she thinks a man should be strong so she can stand up for himself and protect the woman he loves and all of that. And it's a funny role reversal going on. There's a lot of films around this time that do the same thing. Trading Places in 1983, Big in 1988, Like Father, Like Son 1987, Vice Versa in 1988. Lots of father issues in the 80s. Who is my dad? And is it the fault of the women's movement that I don't know who my dad is? And if we're going to be men, what is our choice in the 50s? Well, apparently it's George or Biff. So Marty is a nice middle ground. So here's the great shot of Marty finding out his dad's a peeping Tom. So I'm not encouraged when I see the choices for male role models in the 50s. I'd rather be Marty. Really. And in between George and Biff, you know, what was my dad like? Well, he was probably more like Biff, and that's not very encouraging. So we've got a technical vision here. Marty pushes George out of the way. Cut. Marty hits the ground. Drops his head. Cut. Then Grandpa comes over. I hit one of these kids. Rack forward with the camera. See George. George's... Uh, Goes, gets his bike, camera racks back to Grandpa, and then George is off on the right. That's all one shot. And that's really amazing. Because that would be 18 cuts today with the obligatory 
you know, camera inside the car, making sure you see the body hitting the windshield. So it's an extraordinarily long cut for as much action as going on in that frame. Now, this is another memorable scene, so much so that it's played off in the next two Back to the Future movies as a bit of a joke. But keep in mind, when films started 100 years ago, shots were outrageously long because of the legacy of the stage. If you had a 30 seconds of film in the can, then you shot for 30 seconds. When narrative takes hold due to Griffith and A Birth of a Nation, shot duration drops, but not by that much. Then montage from the Soviet Union under Eisenstein takes over the world, and shot duration is down to just a few seconds. This is a film about time, and these shots convey real time. The shot duration in from 1930 to 1960 fell somewhere between 8 and 11 seconds. In the 70s, it fell from 5 to 8 seconds. And in the 80s, it fell to 5 to 7 seconds. Back to the Future is 5.5 seconds. So it fits right in there. But for some reason, you feel like it should be longer. And this all seems extraneous, but... Bear with me, because Back to the Future is a film about time, and as such, it has extremely long takes. In fact, Zemeckis is known for these long shots in all of his films. Um, Ellie getting her dad's medicine in contact, Forrest Gump running across America, and of course, Castaway is packed with these extraordinarily long shots during Tom Hanks' tenure on a desert island. And that was to make you feel more alone and isolated. But in Back to the Future, it tries to move you along. And it's astounding that Zemeckis is doing this. He's deliberately trying to make the film seem longer when, in fact, what everybody else in Hollywood is trying to do with every tool and dollar at their purpose is to make the film seem shorter. Get to the action, get to the point, get to the audience, uh, in and out of the theater, 90 minutes if it's a comedy, two hours if it's an action film, two and a half, only if it's a drama with Oscar-worthy performances, no exceptions. So we should hate this film, but we don't. We love it. There's so much Oedipal stuff going on between Marty and his mom. It's, it's really amazing. And to what extent it got out of Zemeckis' and Gail's hands, nobody knows. But Marty is unwittingly competing against his father for his mother's affections. And later you'll see Doc come in basically as like, a, like an oracle, even though he doesn't really know the future. He predicts the whole plot of the movie to Marty, telling him what happened to his parents and what will happen to him if he doesn't get his parents back together again. When Marty manages to do this, the Oedipal plot reverses itself, and in this way, it's very different. He doesn't have to blind himself, although if he failed, he would have disappeared and nobody would have seen him, so he would have been blinded, or rather, the world would have been blinded to his existence, kind of like a TV set with no signal. See how I worked that in there? Huh, huh, huh? So I think Leah Thompson was my whole purpose in living for a few weeks in 1985. She's a beautiful woman coquettish, squirrely. In an interview, she said that she fought to reverse the casting order. They wanted her to come in as a young Lorraine and then come in later as makeup to play old Lorraine. And she did the reverse. She came in older first and then came back up. And they couldn't believe that this young girl had played the older actress. And, you know, they saw her come in and play this teenage slut that they would have, they would have really remembered her, right? Now, let's get back to technology for a bit as the honeymooners come up again and we get the rerun joke. I saw this in the theater. There are many things that were very obvious to me that added to the humor of the film. 
I'm not sure if I was just more cognizant of a kid or if every kid was like that, but I remember watching this movie and thinking of the dramatic difference in technology between 1955 and 1985, and this plays into the plot. The science fiction reality of the time machine aside, Marty is faced with many differences in 1955. First, of course, 1.1 gigawatts is a hell of a lot of electricity to generate, especially in a town in California that has only had electricity for maybe a couple of decades. Second is the ability of the film to comment on films. So Marty's video camera takes a VHS tape, of which I had like 100 in my house, and each one had three movies apiece, including this one. And all television that was broadcasted live was recorded. Some broadcasts weren't, but most were recorded on celluloid. So this changed in the 60s to what was then high-grade reel-to-reel videotape. And in 1955, it was in my house, and in 1980, there were three channels, ABC, NBC, CBS. There was VHF and UHF and, and nothing else. And UHF was weak because I grew up in the suburbs. We were too far from the city. But by the time I saw Back to the Future, we had cable. So I'd seen The Honeymooners, and I knew who Ralph Cramden was. I lived on reruns on Nickelodeon. And I saw all these 50 shows, Father Knows Best, Leave it to Beaver, The Courtship of Eddie's Father, Flipper, Lassie, The Andy Griffith Show. I saw all that stuff, My Three Sons, Mr. Ed, and I watched millions of westerns. Gunsmoke, you know, Have Gun, Will Travel. So when... Marty says rerun. I laugh my ass off. What's a rerun? Reruns didn't exist until the 70s. Uh, It took I Love Lucy and Star Trek really failing and being canceled before runs and syndication on UHF really started uh, paying off. And Marty says he has two TVs, right? That's wealth. That's power. That's affluent America right there. And I got it and I laughed. I had a frame of reference because I had Nickelodeon. I read somewhere on the internet that everything Doc predicts here is true. When he tells Marty his three guesses as to why he's at his door, they can all be explained, though Marty doesn't know it. And in fact, the mind-reading device works. I don't remember what the hell it was or where it is, and I couldn't find it, but I thought I'd bring it up. When I re-watched this for this podcast, I couldn't figure it out to save my life. And this shot looks like it's out of... Some James Whale Frankenstein picture. The Saturday Evening Post, which of course is a magazine that didn't exist by 1985. And then Doc is going to go to his garage and let's talk about that before we get there. Does it, we already talked about the computer. He invented a time machine without one. And in the first shot, we see the Rube Goldberg machine that mimics the linear line of history and how most people view history, cause and effect. And Marty interrupted a cause, so his effect is that he disappears. And though the DeLorean has a capacitor and settings, and you can, in fact, program it with a, a phone board, there's no screen, really. There's a readout. It's very simple, like the Apollo missions, switches and relays and all of that. And Doc's flying car at the end is pretty funny if you think about all those flying car commercials that Detroit was putting out. Mr. Fusion is funny. But Ford actually proposed an atomic car in the 50s that had a small nuclear reactor in it. It was the 1958 Nucleon. Talk about solving a fuel shortage. Aircraft carriers have those now, and they run for 25 years or so. So look at how the camera slides forward here. It's a revelation uh, to Doc. It's going gonna, it's gonna to rack to Marty, and it's going to rack back to Doc. I've got it. Right. Who's vice president? Jerry Lewis. So there was that slide back. 
the garage looks like the exact same garage. And you'll see the portraits, Newton, Franklin, Edison. And he's actually going to talk to Tom soon. But if you remember forward or back in time in his garage in 1985, Newton is no longer there. And this is very interesting because Newton is pretty much where modern physics and calculus came from and all that real-life interpretation of nature. That's where that comes from. But he's gone in 1985. It's like Edison has replaced him. But Franklin, not Edison, Einstein. Franklin is the dreamer and Edison is the practical inventor and Einstein the theory of relativity where you get time travel from. So that all fits and works. So the reason he mentions Jane Wyman is that she was actually uh, Reagan's wife at the time. He divorced her and married Nancy Davis. And then the Jack Benny line was funny as Secretary of the Treasury because Jack Benny had an on-screen performance on TV in which he played a, a real penny pincher. So the bolt of lightning is the only thing that can get him back. And this is all terribly convenient because he's back this week that Doc has this vision. And of course the clock stops and the clock will kill Marty if the clock stops, if he's still there. So if he doesn't make it back in time, so the clock stopping will stop Marty from having a future. So now (laughs) camera to the TV and I'm wondering as a 10 year old how's he doing that with no coaxial because TVs back then didn't have them and you can see Doc's amazement at the camcorder he's fucking perplexed that you can put a camera on your shoulder and record anything that you want anytime you want and play it back instantaneously this was close to magic in 1955 and so is the Sony Walkman in the age of the transistor radio the radiation suit in time of atomic testing even Marty's underwear and the vest they seem otherworldly But the only thing really otherworldly in this film is the time machine itself. So despite all of these links to technology and nostalgia, we remain very grounded in a world that we recognize in a world that we recognize then. 1.21 gigawatts. So you see the dartboard. It's kind of like a clock. Another, the tire on the wall. Another circle. And then in the next shot, when he's talking to Tom in the background... You will eventually see a spirograph that kind of looks like an atomic bomb mushroom. So if you want to push this farther, you do this experiment. I'm 41 years old now, and last year I sat down and watched the original taking of Pelham 123 with my mother. She's 72. I have watched that film, I don't know, 100 times, but I missed stuff because I don't remember 1974, but my mother does. Martin Balsam is shoving this thing up his nose when he's congested because he's got a cold. And I don't know what the hell this is. And my mother laughs her ass off because it's a Vicks stick, like Vicks VapoRub. And when you are congested, you shove this stick that looks like uh, you know lip balm up your nose. They don't make them anymore. And I, I wonder why, apparently. Shoving menthol sticks up your nose in public is just not as cool as it was in 1974. But do that to your folks if you're in good with them. I watched Michael Mann's Thief with my mother and had a blast laughing at James Kahn's dialogue to Tuesday Weld. So give that a shot. Marty is standing next to the light because that is the the light bulb going off, the Eureka over over his head when he comes up with the, 
the clock tower flyer. So why 1955? In history, this is largely seen as being the first year in which the Soviet Union and the United States recognize, however begrudgingly, that nuclear weapons, far from being the solution to conflict between the two countries, would in fact be entirely disastrous, not just for the belligerents, but for the entire world. 1955 saw the signing of the Warsaw Pact, which was the communist response to NATO, and that summer was the East-West Summit in Geneva, in which both sides basically admitted, again, somewhat unhappy and begrudgingly, that the status quo in Europe should not change. What this did this mean? This meant that neither side was happy about Germany being permanently divided. They weren't happy about the East being under communist aggression and Berlin being openly supplied by rail. But to change anything in Europe meant outright war. And so nobody wanted that because it meant nuclear war. And nobody wanted that because nobody could win. So this is a stalemate of the highest order. And in after 1955, public perception of nuclear war changed from something that we were willing to risk before 1955 to something that we feared, greatly feared. And the solution was to try to limit the amount of arms being tested, the amount being made, the amount kept in service, and you had disarmament talks in London as early as 1957. In contrast to this, people largely see the Reagan era as an era in which the limitation of arms is reversed. Military spending around rockets and Star Wars program and you have a series of films in the 80s that recognize this as a threat. You even have comedies like Spies Like Us, a very underrated film, a wonderful, wonderful film. But you've got War Games and Short Circuit and Terminator and stuff all, all over the 80s. Defcon for B-movies. So Back to the Future is different in that it treats nuclear technology kind of like before 1955, like a wonder rather than this poisonous stuff that can kill us all. And that is more like how it was viewed in the early 50s than it was in the early 80s. Now it seems like we're circling back to nuclear power because of the whole coal issue. Even Doc, when he sees himself in a video, says, well, I must be wearing the radiation suit because of all the fallout in the future. You know, we laughed at that. But in 1955, that wasn't anything to laugh about. So you do have time machine movies in the 80s and this technological emphasis, probably because of PCs and Macs, Blade Runner, Time After Time, Somewhere in Time, The Final Countdown, Time Bandits, Time Rider, The Philadelphia Experiment, The Terminator, My Science Project. And most of these time travel movies go backwards. They rarely go forwards. And you do have... <laughs> look on Christopher Lloyd's face when she says dream boy, dreambo. And focusing on Lorraine, you do have this sort of uh, rebirth phenomenon happening in a lot of these movies. Like 12 Monkeys, for instance... You start in the future and you go back in time and to, to contemporary society. And they, they focus on birth. Bruce Willis has to basically put on like a prophylactic to go back. And then he arrives almost like as if that he, he's come out of some sort of huge placenta. And he's covered in all this fluid. Terminator, of course, has uh, the Terminators and Michael Reese. And they show up in a bubble in which they are nude. And some of them practically look like a fetus. And in Back to the Future, the flux capacitor looks strangely similar to a fallopian tube 
and of course, Marty is having all kinds of problems with his mother. This is the long shot that I was uh, saying, this 50-some-odd seconds here. It's, it's an amazing shot. So I used to teach high school in a very old school, and it was built in the 30s, and it was renovated in the 50s. It looked nothing like this in terms of style. This looks more like Harvard or Yale than the school that I taught in. This looks like a prep school. I taught in a school that looked like a police precinct in the, you know, in the 70s, cops and everything. The neighborhood I used to teach in was actually segregated, so there was a black side and a white side. No railroad tracks, it was just a road. And the neighborhood was predominantly black, so the school board was mostly black back then, 30 years in the 50s. And of course, the bond voting and the taxes were black. And as a consequence, the black school was actually quite nice. It was very new, and when it was shut down, it had all these kinds of modern technology that the white school didn't have. The reason I know this is because I taught with black teachers who went to that school as students, and later on they became teachers, and they went back to that school as teachers. And when integration happened, they closed the black school, and all the black teachers had to come teach in the white school. Decades later, where I worked, and I met these people, and they were fine, wonderful people. So the black students had to be bused into the white neighborhood to go to the white school, even though the black school was bigger and had more room and was more technologically advanced, because the whites did not want to go to a black neighborhood to go to school. White teachers, however, tended to stay on. So on the wall of this high school, you could see from 1968 to 1978, this drastically changing school from year to year, slowly going from being completely white to almost going completely black. And this kind of mirrors the great white flight in the 50s and 60s that Lyon Estates basically shows you what's going on. You know, Town Square, Hill Valley Town Square looks really crowded in 1955, but it looks very deserted in 1985. Not nearly as many people. They all moved out to the burbs. But if you jumped forward another 10 years on this, this wall with all of these class photos, during the 90s, you saw it go from almost completely black to almost completely Latino. And the only reason why I bring this up is to contrast this very white image that we see here in Back to the Future and remind ourselves that this image by its nature is not inclusive. My parents liked it. Their friends liked it. I liked it. And along the way, everyone conveniently forgot that there was another school nearby that was full of black kids. And largely, they went to a school that was dilapidated. They had books that were, in some cases, decades old. They had no funding for sports. They weren't allowed to come to the white neighborhoods except to work as servants. So remember when you see the sanitized image that many people see and enjoy because it reminds them of their youth in 1955. It, it wasn't a sanitized place. It wasn't nice, despite the standard of living being the highest America had ever seen, even for African Americans. Zemeckis is going to step dangerously, dangerously close to a line here. And that we'll go into a little bit, but keep that in mind for now. Love this house, the ranch-style house of the 1950s. My grandparents had a house like that. So this shot is 35 seconds. It's amazing. And in general, it reminds me of these... Douglas Sirk melodramas, these houses, especially Imitation of Life. I love that film. So Van Halen, Darth Vader, The Walkman, and this gives George the inspiration to start writing science fiction novels, similar to the movie that we're watching now. Sci-fi replacing the Western as a theme. 
the kids in the in the day they just loved the you know the hair dryer and all of this fantastic story magazine and that creature looks like uh, the Robert Wise film these kids on the skateboard in the background are hysterical little rascals kind of stuff my dad graduated high school in 1963 so his memories of the 50s were very clear he told me that he had this uh, record you know the ballad of Davy Crockett but I'm sure every kid in Texas had that phonograph right there the ballad of Davy Crockett 16 tons so on the wall of the diner you see singles penned up and in the diner you've got 50s music playing and I always wondered why they didn't choose Hey Paula by Paula and Paula for the soundtrack that would just be perfect for this film but I looked it up and that was 1963 and 1964 was the winter album so there goes that notion but you get where I'm going the whole teenage love affair thing the environment for that is perfect in Back to the Future it's like you're at the enchantment under the sea dance early in the movie The color tone is like Rebel Without a Cause. The clothes look like On the Waterfront. The Universal theme park in Florida had this diner that looked exactly like the one in Back to the Future down to the jukebox. And Crispin Glover is amazing here. Lou, milkshake! And it slid across the bar like a a beer in a Western. And I saw Marty coming in the door there, but there's another shot of George and I didn't notice it but Marty's in the background to the left and it took me 20 years and there he is took me 20 years to notice that and it looks like he's drinking a coke so we live in a pop culture world now and most of it is driven by nostalgia nostalgia can be good and nostalgia can be bad I've already mentioned how nostalgia can ignore horrible ideas like segregation can sidestep very important medical ideas. There's an amazing movement now against vaccinations. Parents don't want to get their kids vaccinations because they think it's dangerous. Because, you know, they think the inoculation against smallpox or polio is more dangerous than smallpox or polio. And that attitude comes from this dangerous idea of nostalgia. Well, we didn't have it back then and everything was fine. That kind of idea. As if things were simpler in the past and therefore better. Well, it was simpler. But you asked Franklin Delano Roosevelt if it was better or not. The generation that grew up with Back to the Future is my generation. Generation X is what we were called when we started going out of college. And a generation of filmmakers came from us, and they were directors like J.J. Abrams and Kevin Smith and they know this film like the back of their hand. It's shaped a lot of modern conversations in film. Kevin Smith in particular has made somewhat of a living of dropping lines from Star Wars, and Abrams has directed a Star Wars movie. So the power of nostalgia is formidable, especially when it's got lines like these in Back to the Future. Save the clock tower. You're going to see some serious shit. 1.21 gigawatts. Very memorable, but plot-driven stuff. I was playing some serious Call of Duty multiplayer one day. I just finished a 7 or 80 hour work week. It was minus 20 outside or something, and I had to get 
one more headshot to unlock a gold camo and get a new card. I was deep into it for like an hour, and in walks my wife talking about something. I don't know what it was, but I wasn't listening to her. It was just that hard to quick scope and have a State of the Union at the same, same time. And she just gets pissed because she doesn't think that I've listened to anything she said, and I won't react to anything except with canned responses so that I can keep playing. So finally I get knocked off, and I know I've got five seconds to spawn again. I turn to her while she's walking down the hallway away from me, and I say, What, Lorraine? What? And she fucking dropped in the middle of the hallway, laughing her ass off, holding her gut, you know. So Back to the Future saved my marriage. And a lot of these lines are timeless. My kid goes around the house. Great, Scott! You know, he tells the cat, better get used to these bars, kid, when we put him into the kennel. He's actually told me to slow down on the road because he doesn't want to go back in time. So despite the feeling that perhaps this is a great 80s movie and it'll never transcend time, it won't be timeless. And in fact, it's it seems to hold its own. There's a lot of films that seem huge at the time of release and then they just don't survive. And I don't mean Lost Gems. I mean films like Lost Boys which you thought was fucking amazing in the 80s, but you watch it now and it just looks hokey and you start making Schumacher jokes and you wonder why Corey Feldman, who's been acting since he was a fetus, is so bad in it. Goonies is another example of a film that you would think would be locked in time and place and it would never survive the 80s, but it has survived and Feldman is fantastic in it. And yet other films like Rambo, people still like Rambo, don't get me wrong, but at the time it was released, it was serious and now people make fun of it. MIA with Chuck Norris, which was a sort of a B-movie franchise. It had more purpose and meaning in it than Rambo. So let's go back to the beginning and make a, a couple of comments. Doc's Garage, the Frankenstein Lab. Already gone over that, except for the saxophone hanging there in the in the background. The huge speaker that Marty blows out in the beginning, there was a, a famous commercial and a famous photograph from the media company TDK of a guy sitting in his chair with his speakers on and his hair flying back, and his wine glass was sliding across the speaker. His dog's ears were flying. And I'm sure that was after Back to the Future. If you're my age, you'll remember it. And I wonder if there were any concerns about plagiarism there. Interesting shot here with the clock tower in the foreground on the set and the DeLorean in the background and how they are connecting the two in purpose when the car goes off. And this is a very wonderful scene, which is a funny joke with the fire, but the purpose of it is to explain how the finale is going to go. Films that do this are great. It's not taking the audience for granted by simplifying things. It's just a mode of exposition that works. In Raiders of the Lost Ark, the scene in the lecture hall at the beginning is probably one of the best written scenes, not just in that movie, but in film history. The plot is laid out in three minutes. There's very little cuts, and you don't have to explain anything later. When you see the map room and the staff of Ra, you know exactly what's going to happen, and you're all filled in. The same is here. You're taken through it, you know it, and you don't have any questions. Titanic has a kind of graphic in the beginning to explain what happens to the ship when it sinks. And then two hours later, you're with it. That's called awesome screenwriting. And it's one of the reasons why, as I said before, Back to the Future, the script is used to teach screenwriting at UCLA and USC. And now we're wondering if the garage is going to burn down now and not the house. (laughs) 
and you're not so surprised that the house burns down later. Or maybe not. Maybe Doc was able to save it. Who knows? So for those who don't know why the DeLorean window looks like that at Marty's elbow, it's because of the gull wings. The door was stainless steel and the hydraulics were built into the door so far that they could not fit a panel to hide the window glass and the motor and all the rest of it. I found this amazing because John DeLorean was famously tall. He was over six feet and he hated these small Italian sports cars that had no room for tall guys. So the DeLorean is specifically built for tall people like him and the door is larger, etc. If you look at uh, photos of John DeLorean in the DeLorean, he's got plenty of headroom. Look at Christopher Lloyd when he's in it. He's extremely tall. He's very comfortable. So instead of a window that slides down into the frame like every other car there, it's just a small panel that opens for smokers. I guess he never figured that people who drive DeLoreans would never go to drive-ins or McDonald's or something. Leah Thompson, an amazing woman, Jaws 3D, all the right moves, Red Dawn, the wildlife, all before Back to the Future, Space Camp, I hate to mention it, but she was also in Howard the Duck, and was great in some kind of wonderful, casual sex, of course, Caroline in the City, tons and tons of TV, Eric Stoltz was in some kind of wonderful too. Michael J. Fox is the veteran by this time. Tons of TV. Um, Midnight Madness, a great movie. A gem that people miss. Class of 1984, which is a very fucked up violent movie about youth gangs and rapes and murders. Horrible. Must have been interesting for a guy from Canada to star in that. If you want to know what's going on in Vancouver, go look at the tweets from at ScanBC. It's a riot about... Uh, you know, the RCMP responding to Tim Hortons on McKenzie Avenue for two men shouting at each other very loudly. You know, stuff like that. Teen Wolf also came out in 1985. Light of Day, 1987 with Joan Jett. Secret of My Success, another great movie in 1987. Bright Lights, Big City, 1988 when he tries more adult roles. More non-comedic, but people aren't responding for some reason. Casualties of War, which he is masterful in, but people didn't particularly like. Probably more because of Sean Penn, but Fox could have been miscast in that. 1989. He goes back to comedy to do two sequels to this that were shot back-to-back, then Doc Hollywood, The Hard Way. And then he was in Peter Jackson's The Frighteners, which is an amazing movie that everyone should see and everyone should own. He is amazing in the movie, and Peter Jackson is amazing in a pre- Lord of the Rings CGI experiment film. Jake Busey is amazing. And then he did tons of TV, Spin City, Boston Legal, Rescue Me, the Michael J. Fox show, of course, The Good Wife. And this is obviously the one that put him on the map, but it's not like this guy isn't popular and isn't around. And despite having quite the shit card played out to him, he's still out there and he's fighting and he's giving everything he has to his craft. And look at him here. He's just got this down. He knows what he's doing. And let's not shortchange his acting partner here, Crispin Glover. He did some TV before this, and people think that because of the lawsuit against Universal that he didn't work after it, but it's simply not true. He worked after this every year. He was wonderful at close range, a brutal movie. Uh, River's Edge, Twister, Wild at Heart. He was astounding and perfect as Andy Warhol and Oliver Stone's The Doors. What's Eating Gilbert Grape, The People vs. Larry Flint. Most people remember him in Charlie's Angels. Very hysterical role. And to those who think that Zemeckis wrote him off for the lawsuit, you are wrong. He was in Beowulf. No, not a side character. He played Grendel. And he's been pretty steady in TV since. And that was a long shot of them in the backyard.
Christopher Lloyd popping up on screen now. I got his huge break in One Flew, Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. He did uh, some TV. I already mentioned Taxi, To Be or Not To Be, who framed Roger Rabbit. And I can't list his TV credits because it just goes on and on and on and on forever. The man never stops working. And I guess we better start trying to wrap up. We've got maybe 30 minutes as we head into the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. And I guess we'll start early in discussing the horrible, horrible reality surrounding Lorraine's near rape. The role of women is not very complimentary in this film. Lorraine, as an older woman, is an alcoholic, and when you see how she reacts to her husband, you can understand why. It's not very enviable to think of a woman feeling trapped to a man for her entire life just because she has a nurturing instinct. At the dinner scene in the beginning of the movie, they all look to him like he's nothing, and she just sits there and drinks. And we all laugh, but that's not a joke to Lorraine. That's her life, and it's fucked. And you have the sense that she's not happy other than having her kids. She's an alcoholic married to a man who can't stand up for anything and barely pays any attention to her. So it's just sad. It really is sad. It's a sad reflection of what we expect women to do during and after the decade of their liberation. Zemeckis is also slammed for his role of women in this film and the others, particularly in Contact. Lorraine is here as a drunk. She can't cope with who she's being married to after being a very forward girl in 1955. Marty's sister can't get a date before Marty fixes the past, and then she's got so many boyfriends in 1985, she can't keep up. So Marty is hounding Jennifer to have sex in the back of his truck. And someone please tell me, ladies, especially if you had a man try to rape you in high school, would you want that asshole waxing your car in your late 40s? So we're going to Marvin Berry and the Moonlighters. I mean, Honeymooners. I mean, Starlighters in a minute because we got to talk about Johnny B. Good. But back to this whole Lorraine thing. Date rape itself didn't actually change in definition until after this film. So in 1987, Katie Kostner was an 18-year-old white Christian virgin from Atlanta, Georgia, who went to the College of William and Mary in Virginia to study chemical engineering. She dated a man multiple times before she asked him to her dorm room after dinner. When things went past her comfort zone, she told her attacker over 12 times no before and during forced intercourse, that she did not want to have sex with him, and she wanted him to stop. After the rape, Kostner went to the college clinic where she was given sleeping pills and told to forget it. Then she went to the dean of the university, who investigated it and told Kostner, yes, that she had been violated, but the boy was from a good family and she should really think about getting back together with him. Then she called her father, an FBI agent, who told his traumatized daughter over the phone that it was her fault because she invited him to her room. And he hung up on her. So she went to the cops, and they didn't want to investigate it. So she went to the district attorney, and they didn't want to charge him. But the boy had violated a student handbook rule on sexual harassment, so Kostner forced a hearing. And he said on tape that when she stopped saying no after a dozen times, he knew that it was okay with her. So the case was dismissed, and Kostner felt even worse than before. So she went to the press, 
And there she was raped a third time when feminists told her that she was making women look weak. The college accused her of tarnishing their image. Some women even told her, well, you know, at least you had a nice free meal. So to be raped by a stranger on the side of the road, that was a horrible offense. But if you knew the person and then your consent meant nothing, and even though Lorraine is not raped here that George stepped in, we have to compare this, folks, at this time and at this place. What Biff was doing was not considered wrong. It's not her car. It's Doc's car. It doesn't matter what she said to him at the school about not being that kind of girl. That's what America was like in 1955. And to be honest about it, that's what most of this world is like today. There are countries in the world that still refer to women as property and practice clitendectomies without anesthesia because they are sexist, jingoistic, and misogynist cultures that have no respect for women because they don't see them as human beings. So having Bick Biff wax your car, demeaning, degrading, sure, fun to gloat, fine, but man, what a mind fuck to your wife. The line here about kissing Marty feeling like it was kissing your brother was meant by Gail and Zemeckis to throw off any concerns about the edible thing. But we look past that next because of what happens. And this wasn't the only time that Zemeckis has been called out for stuff like this. In Forrest Gump, a lot of people see Ginny as representing the hippie movement. She's free and promiscuous and a feminist. And what happened? She, she winds up with AIDS and dies. And who has to take care of her? The only person in her life that she knew could balance a checkbook and take care of another human being. The idiot soldier that she grew up with. There's a popular meme out there with Forrest and Jenny on the bus and it says my last marriage was like Forrest and Jenny I was an idiot and she was a whore so Kostner eventually hired a lawyer and used the transcript from the hearing at the school in order to sue the young man in question and people tried to talk her out of it said you're gonna you're gonna ruin his life she won the lawsuit. There's a lot of unintended racism in Back to the Future that I'm not comfortable with, and we'll start with the Starlighters here. 3D here calls one of the Starlighters uh, spook, and that's Casey Semesco, by the way. Fantastic. And Billy Zane there on the far right, for those of you who didn't recognize him. The retort is uh, Peckerwood, not Honky. That probably would have started a lynching. The white kids assume that the black guys are smoking reefer because of the color of their skin. So in essence, in this scene, race relations are pretty on par. Blacks are excluded from the plot of the film due to the narrative, but they are included and involved in the story. Without the Starlighters, Marty doesn't exist. You can look at it that way. The future mayor, Goldie Wilson to stay on the race theme, works for a racist who doesn't believe Hill Valley will ever have a black mayor, and he says so unashamedly in front of a whole diner of his customers, and no one challenges him on this except Marty. I never thought about it as a kid, other than the spook comment when Marty is locked in the trunk. In reality, if an African-American confronted a white kid and called him a peckerwood, you know, they'd probably go get the sheriff and 20 people to come back and arrest the guy and beat him up. So we shouldn't be surprised that Hill Valley is a racist place. But unfortunately, the film doesn't just comment on this and move on. But what the film is saying when Marty plays Johnny B. Good and Marvin Berry, supposedly Chuck Berry's cousin, picks up the phone 
And so Chuck can hear the song. What, what is that saying? Rock and roll is a very white phenomenon, a very white sound. And it came from, was ripped from, was born from, was stolen from black rhythm and blues, black soul, black jazz music. There would be no rock and roll without African-Americans. This is a rich musical heritage, and it was developed in the black community over 50 years preceding 1955. And it melded and churned in a cauldron of raw emotion that included Lead Belly and Robert Johnson and a hundred other musicians from Chicago to Muscle Shoals to New Orleans. And it's insulting to insinuate that something as impactful as Johnny B. Good didn't come from a black kid from St. Louis that spent time in a youth reformatory where he boxed and joined a quartet and later worked in an auto plant where he was underpaid just because he was black. Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin gave an interview on MTV when No Quarter was released in the 90s, and he said that from a very early age, all he wanted to do was sing American black rhythm and blues. And that was where Led Zeppelin came from. So it's an insult not just to African Americans, but it's an insult to American heritage and history in general that rock and roll came from Anglos. And sliding off of that, Goldie running for mayor isn't even Goldie's idea. It's, it's Marty's idea because he told Goldie about it in the diner and Goldie's all puffed up because of the idea that a white man gave him. I know this is not what Zemeckis intended. Of course it's not. Just like the sexism that permeates contact, but it's here. And when I was a kid, I laughed at this. I laughed at it for 20 years and now I, I can't laugh at it anymore. I give it a smirk and I shake my head and I'm saying, Jesus, I can't believe they put that in there and didn't think about why. So Michael J. Fox is the reason I started riding a skateboard. He's the reason why I preferred checked jackets and 50s rock and roll music. Bill Haley in the comments. Michael J. Fox is the reason why I learned how to play guitar. Sadly, I was never this good and never competent enough to play a song this simple as Earth Angel. I bought the soundtrack on tape, I have it on CD, and for the 30th anniversary, I, I bought it on iTunes. And so should you. Last month, Fox joined Coldplay on stage during their tour, and they played both Earth Angel and Johnny B. Good. You can see it on YouTube. It's incredible that someone with Fox's malady can still pull that off. So I always thought the sequence was kind of weird. George can stand up to Biff, but not to Carrot Top. But it reaffirms his manlyhood and rights and all wrong in the world. And at least it writes the disappearing Marty in the photo. I love the look Marvin gives Marty here. And I'm sure I'm not too sure, actually, if it's intentional. But the white jacket George is wearing is akin to casino clad James Bond. And who is more manly than James Bond? This visual effect of Marty's hand disappearing is courtesy of Industrial Light and Magic. She did very well. Pops back into the frame. Playing like no one has played before. Earth Angel. Yeah. <laughs> so the soundtrack to Back to the Future was almost as popular as the film. It was driven by Huey Lewis and the news Power of Love, which gained huge radio play. But it also had... The other song, Back in Time, which is the theme of the movie. One side of the vinyl was loaded with contemporary music, and the other side was loaded with 50s music. So you had Lindsey Buckingham 
on Time Bomb Town. Eric Clapton contributed Heaven is One Step Away, which is playing on the Bums radio when Marty goes back to the future. Side 2 was filled with mostly period music, including Earth Angel and Johnny B. Good, but also The Wallflower, Dance With Me Henry by Etta James, and the instrumental Night Train, which is what the Starlighters play when we first go to the dance with that amazing saxophone. The vinyl is still on Amazon.com and it has a one, one-star review that reads, quote, I had to return this item, I thought it came packaged in a sleeve, but it's just the vinyl album, unquote. There are no two-star reviews, there are no three-star reviews. 75% of the reviews are five-star reviews. So the soundtrack's reputation holds up. I feel like I have to pay attention to music more because I completely left out Vangelis in my Blade Runner podcast, and that's just sinful. I don't want to shortchange music at all. I'm convinced that Jaws, Star Wars, Apocalypse Now would not have been the huge hits that they were if they had different music. So added to the pop songs and soundtrack is this wonderful score by Alan Silvestri. And this is technically a sci-fi film, but Silvestri has put in a rather retro type of soundtrack with a lot of horns, and it's very reminiscent of a Western, which is fitting because of part three. The entire main theme is like a Western, but punctuated with small hints of sci-fi and the symbols, and of course there's that xylophone chime that you get in iTunes for your phone alert that marks the transitions. And of course, Westerns in the 50s, if you look at the top 10 TV shows in the 1950s, like eight of them are Westerns. If you look at the top 10 radio shows, probably all 10 of them are going to be Westerns. It's Westerns permeated everything. If you look at the top 10 movies every year, I'm sure like five to seven of them would be Westerns. And that's just not the case anymore. Everything has changed. Westerns have have uh, died out. So Alan Silvestri has had an amazing career, and it's linked to Zemeckis. His big break was in Romancing the Stone, which I watched recently with my son. And to be honest, I thought the score was quite bad. It sounded like a TV movie. But look after that. Fandango, Predator, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, The Abyss, Young Guns, Forrest Gump, What Women Want, Cast Away... Captain America, the first Avenger, Flight. The shot on Marty on stage is simply amazing. Right there, the slide. Castaway is particularly noteworthy because the entire time Tom Hanks is on the island, there's no music. Sylvester's done tons more. I'm just noting some ones that I remember that stand out. I remember reading or listening to someone once, a critic, who said that you know it was a good score if you didn't remember it. And I think that's bullshit. How can you sit through Indiana Jones and not get into the music? John Williams is amazing, and by now he's an American icon. So Fox's voice in Johnny B. Good was replaced by another singer, Brian Campbell, I think. But the guitar solo is all him. I think it was foolish to replace his voice. If you listen to him sing in Light of Day and on the Light of Day soundtrack, I think that you'll find he's got a great voice to be a singer. I like Light of Day, by the way, despite its flaws. I just think it's the wrong film for that time. Joan Jett was huge, and if that film would have worked, she would have been a huge movie star. But I think the script just wasn't there. It was very obvious the way that it was going to go, the whole working class band thing. Bands aren't working class anymore. You have to be middle class or rich to afford all the equipment. If you're broke, the only way you can make it into the biz now is by standing out on YouTube. 
So there's 14 and 15 year old girls playing Eruption on YouTube, the song that Marty plays in George's ear when he wakes him up. And she plays it like she's ringing a bell. But your kids are going to love it. So I know it's a little bit late, but I love Marvin looking at the guitar like, what the hell did you just do to my Gibson? And looking at Leah Thompson here, small factotum, the actress Zoe Deutsch is Leah Thompson's daughter. <laughs> look at George taking a look at uh, Lorraine's cleavage. He's getting laid tonight. And I'm sure that's what Lorraine wants to do after being sexually assaulted by the town bully. Triple damn. And I'm sure most of you know by now that Jay is not Michael Fox's middle name middle initial he filled out his actor's guild information card and he couldn't use Michael Fox because there's already a Michael Fox and the guild requires that everyone have different names which is why you have so many actors use middle names or even middle initials so he chose J because he liked the actor Michael J. Pollard Pollard chose the J because his name was also taken as was, you guessed it, Thomas F. Wilson, who plays Biff. Biff. Apparently, Wilson, uh, he said that he and Eric Stoltz played pretty rough in the parking lot fight before the dance. Uh, and Stoltz wasn't into toning it down at all. So Thompson said he was going to get really rough and was preparing for a huge real fight in front of the camera. And that's when Stoltz was let go. And now we move into the finale. And the reason why a lot of kids in the 80s wear multiple watches. Because that's what Doc Brown had. So Zemeckis is further screwing with your head here. The first minute is past 10 p.m. It's actually 36 seconds of screen time. The second minute is a minute and 43 seconds of screen time. The third minute is 46 seconds. There's a lot going on in these minutes some things at the same time, but Zemeckis is stretching and compressing time as he sees fit because he can, because he has a time machine too, only it's not a DeLorean, it's a Panavision 36mm camera. So there's lots of ways to screw around with time in a film. Most movies have, you know, they've got either bookends or they wipe back and forth for flashbacks. There's the ever-popular fade-out or dissolve or maybe a rack-out-of-focus. If you've never seen uh, Highlander, the camera ascends and descends every time you're taken to another time period. A lot of visual cues. The films usually only cue forward. If you've ever seen Lawrence of Arabia, you remember Lawrence blowing out the match and then it cuts to the hot desert, which must be weeks later. All of these are on various scales of effectiveness. Newer types of time cues are Tarantino's Pulp Fiction, which for some reason confused the hell out of some people when it came out. The big one is Memento. Halfway through that film, you almost think it's a comedy because the cues become so funny. But Back to the Future ditches all of these traditions and even doesn't do anything as groundbreaking as Chris Nolan usually does. Instead, it's almost as if time only moves forward, though we are in fact going backward. We stay with Marty going back, inside the DeLorean, in fact. And it's as if nothing has changed, really, when you're with him. When we go forward, we stay with Doc for a minute before the helicopter flies in. And then we see that we're back in 1985. 
But in this instance, we're repeating the trip back, which is why we stay with the clock tower. It's a very unusual way to mark the passage of time in a time travel film, but it ties the scenes seamlessly together, and it doesn't upset us. We don't want to be upset because this is a hella good adventure comedy. So even though helicopters were around in 1955 and one is used to tell you that you are now back into the future because they were simply not popularly used for anything except the military in the 1950s. This climatic scene was changed from the 1981 draft of Back to the Future, which eerily resembles the opening to Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. In that script, Doc takes Marty out to the Nevada desert where he is hoping to use a bottle of Coca-Cola as fuel for the time machine's converter and convert the energy of a nuclear blast from a test site nearby into the 1.21 gigawatts that they need to go back to the future. And by the way, yes, I understand that it's pronounced gigawatt. But Marty makes a mistake and he forgets the Coke and Doc tells him to get into the fridge in a nearby house, thereby hoping the lead lining will save him from the blast. But Marty instead raids a house full of mannequins, looking a lot like the Call of Duty Nuketown map, and finds a Coke in their fridge because the army tests the radiation levels on everything as if they were a norm- in a normal American town. A Nuketown. So... Film is immemorial. No one forgets good ideas or bad ideas. And it's obvious that Spielberg and Lucas recycled this idea, and why not? It's a good one. But whether to use it in an Indiana Jones film, well, I think the audience has judged that unwise. I also think it was better to cut it because, you know, kids would get into fridges and close them for sure, right? We all say Hollywood doesn't influence, but come on. I would have been killed holding on to that mail truck when I was a kid. That's a fact. So that idea didn't work, but hey, you know, some do. John Muir, who's one of the founding members of Industrial Light and Magic and and uh, helped write Photoshop, he recently revealed on the show, geeking out, that the plot for the new movie Rogue One was his idea. He gave it to George Lucas 20 years ago, and when Lucas sold Lucasfilm to Disney, he told Muir to give that idea to Kathleen Kennedy who, as per the terms of the sale of Lucasfilm, is that company's director until further notice. So ideas are powerful. They can make things exist. Or in the case of Back to the Future, they can make things not exist. Like Marty, for instance. I never understood why Marty had to dress back into his jeans and life preserver. Time is precious, but you do have to change. Whatever. John DeLorean supposedly wrote Robert Zemeckis a letter thanking him for using the car in the film and immortalizing it. They were used, I think, only three DeLoreans during filming, but now there's dozens of time machines. Many, many years ago, I actually sat in a DeLorean that belonged to a friend of my father's, and he said he was unimpressed with the performance of the engine. He said it was underpowered, considering the weight of the car. And I asked him if he planned on ever getting rid of it, and he said no. He'd never get the chance to get another one, so when the engine went out, he would just replace it with a more powerful engine. 
when I decided to do this podcast, I went online to some DeLorean website forums, and that seems to be pretty typical. Many people complain about the original engine not having enough power, and pretty much everyone who has had to rebuild the engine has opted for a more powerful V6 engine, or in a couple of circumstances, a straight six, which I understand is more powerful, but a lot less gas efficient. I left out a million things here. See if I can squeeze any of them in. Um, already mentioned Casey Semesco's 3D, which was a technology invented in the 50s to get people away from their TVs at home and back into the movie theaters. There was a 3D craze that died out pretty quick, but it briefly came back in the 70s before falling back in obscurity. And of course, 3D is back now, but there seems to be two types of 3D, one that contributes to the storytelling like gravity, and some would say Tron Legacy, and 3D that does not, like all Marvel films, maybe Ant-Man. In fact, most Disney films. In 1955, the Oscar for Best Picture went to a film called uh, Marty that starred Ernest Borgnine. I'm sure that was just a coincidence. In 2007, Back to the Future was entered into the U.S. Library of Congress for being a culturally important film. Of America. And if you're a huge Back to the Future fan like me and you have Netflix, there's a documentary on Netflix called Back in Time, which is about the film and its fans. It doesn't have a huge amount of access. It's not approved by Universal, but it, it does have some neat things in it. See the fallopian tubes lighting up here. Great shot construction. The clock is ticking. Doc slides down. Marty's got to book it. The DeLorean giving us an excellent idea of anxiety and speed. Doc makes it just in time. He's got this determined face. One more minute on the clock. Enormous explosion of a lightning bolt. And then... Marty runs into the porno shop. I myself react horribly under pressure, and I'm not sure that I could do this in the nick of time. I think I would rather spend the rest of my life with Marty in counseling and using a hypnotherapist to get him to remember who won the next 30 years' worth of World Series, which is the plot of the second film. And the atomic kid in the theater turns into the assembly of God. Is that a pro-choice message or what? Now, if you watch the shots, how long they are, here's the helicopter for the transition. You think Doc's looking at the clock tower, but he's not. Time has changed. And if you look into the background, you can see a great detail of lots of time period changes. But Goldie Wilson seemingly can't do anything about homelessness in the future, so why a wraparound shot with a homeless guy? Why pan down from the clock tower? Oh, shit. Look at the, look at the car dealership. I don't remember what it was, but now it's selling Toyotas. <laughs> and, of course, uh, Marty should have left the DeLorean in neutral here. 
And this shot makes the DeLorean look more like an Alfa Romeo or a Citroen. And I think that if you look at the history of DeLorean's design, you'll see that it was on purpose. It was an American car, but it was built in Europe for Americans and a European market. And I love it when Marty looks at the porno playing and he says, everything's great. And he's back to normal. And it's another weird moment. And then the Libyans drive by and apparently they're big Volkswagen fans, which I guess if you're an Islamic terrorist, uh, why wouldn't you love a car designed by Hitler? So 10 minutes is not enough, and Marty is just as late here as he is to everything else. And I guess he's got to run to Old Man Peabody's farm, which I would have thought would be in the suburbs of Hill Valley, but he probably knows a shortcut. Too bad the futuristic car couldn't get him there on time. That's not particularly good for DeLorean's reputation. But look at this performance while he's at the, now it's the Lone Pine Mall, right? Because he ran over the other pine. And you expect Marty to say, no, you bastards. And he himself is about to scream because it's too late and he's failed. And he looks just crushed. And he's just as lost now as he was in 1955. It's a really powerful performance for a cross-genre comedy film that's not supposed to be taken too seriously. And has anyone ever wondered what scientific services Doc Brown is providing 24 hours a day? Do you know what I'm thinking? My fellow Breaking Bad fans? That's right, Meth Lab. I originally thought this mall was the one by my house because we had a JCPenney's and we had a Kodak drop-off booth just like the one the terrorists crash into here. An amazing shot of the DeLoreans disappearing into time because if you remember, the camera was with Marty in the DeLorean when it happened the first time, so you didn't get to see it in third person. I'm surprised there was no explosion there. Normally in Hollywood films, there's... In this case, there's, that's usually a cause, right? A gas tank and a pile of RPGs, boom. But not here. Could have been a budget issue. So we had a series of quick cuts to get us to the Lone Pine Mall, and now we go back to longer cuts. Subjects are not far away enough to require a lot of racking, but you do have some camera movement. Fox looks genuinely surprised. I think Christopher Lloyd is as old today as Doc Brown is supposed to be then in the film. In 1955, he was 17, so he wasn't exactly an older guy then either. Great makeup, and there was back in a day when you didn't have a lot of bulletproof vest tricks. They were few and far between, but of course everyone was getting shot and then getting up with vests after that. Lethal Weapon was one. There were a lot of them. And as we wrap up, we become aware that there's a couple of things wrong with the future. First is that this is not Marty's future. It's not even Marty's present. This timeline is something that he created by altering his parents' past. So he now lives in a timeline that is different than the one that he was raised in, and his experiences are now different than everyone that he knows and loves except Doc. So how long before Marty goes crazy because what he knows about life is absolutely wrong? His brother's not working at Burger King, and his sister being the block hottie is just the beginning. The second thing that's kind of fucked up is what Kristen Glover was talking about in his interview with Mark Marin, which is why is Marty's life different, being different, marked in a seeming increase in financial wealth of his family? Why is this considered better? Can they not be better people without being richer people? And this bears a lot of scrutiny. Glover ultimately thinks that this is why he was not asked back to play George McFly in the sequels. 
Glover is in those films, but in a remarkable situation, footage of him from the first film was reused, and in certain scenes, an actor playing George had his face replaced by Glover's face using a mask that was made off of Glover's face in the first film. And in other situations, Glover's face was lifted from prints from the first film and overlaid onto the actor's face in the sequels. And this is three years before The Crow was replacing backgrounds and doing weird CGI stuff. So this is pretty radical. Glover's image was used without paying him a dime, and he sued Universal because there are very specific rules in the Actors Guild that prevent this from happening. They eventually reached a resolution that satisfied both parties, but Glover has been saddled with this idea that he's radioactive and no one will touch him because of the lawsuit. That's really not correct. First, he continued to work just as much as any of the other actors. And second, like he's by far not the first actor to sue a studio over something like that. So look at the dramatic difference in set design here, not just in the furniture, but the costumes and even the dining set. There's no doubt that the McFlys went from lower middle class to upper middle class. And if you think that this is not possible, by the way, that a mask that looks exactly like someone else in Hollywood, then I want you to read Tony Mendez's memoir, Master of Disguise, a CIA memoir. Tony Mendez was an artist who was hired by the CIA out of art school to forge documents like passports. In the late 60s, he specialized in defections and extractions, especially high-profile personalities in Eastern Bloc nations. He went to Hollywood and trained in a makeup department at Universal of All Places in Burbank, and he trained with John Chambers, a makeup artist who racked up some Oscars. Chambers worked on Planet of the Apes, Lost in Space, Mission Impossible, and his skull caps now are industry standard. Mendez took that training to the CIA, and he started training other agents. He would fly into Soviet Union, or other countries, and use these eight or so masks that turn people into Bogart or Bacall or whoever, and use them to fly people out with fake documents. Mendez said that these were completely real, and the Soviets couldn't tell that they were looking at Humphrey Bogart's face or whoever, because very few Hollywood films were allowed in the Soviet Union. This was in the 70s, folks, and I've heard rumors of other films like Witness, where Kelly McGillis didn't want to appear topless, so they got another actress and they made a mask of McGillis's face and put it over a body double, Mission Impossible style. It's quite wild to think of and perhaps more outdated, but apparently it's pretty effective. Mendez said that you could speak through this mask. You could make facial expressions. If Mendez sounds like a familiar name, it's because his story Argo is the basis for the Oscar-winning film of the same name directed by Ben Affleck. Man, this is creepy. The rapist is waxing your car. And then you invite him into your house around your daughter. And why does Biff have to act like a groveling slave? Yes, Amasa, here's your sci-fi books. Can't he be humbled and turned into a decent person without being ridiculed and abused like he's a slave in Birth of a Nation? It's wild to think of, but Corey Hart and Johnny Depp were also screen tested for Marty. So to the garage, he gets the Toyota. Why does he get the Toyota? It's, it's kind of perplexing. The McFlies are suddenly able to do all kinds of things because George can ball up a fist. So Back to the Future is about our past. It's about our present. It's about what we want in our future. It is heavily about nostalgia and the power of nostalgia and how it can be right, and how it can be really wrong. 
and it's about what we think we were 30 years ago and why we should change to be better 30 years from now. It's about culture and money and date rape and ultimately, I think, how you can be surrounded by things that are ultimately unfamiliar to you, but you can, if you put in the effort, you can change things for the better because you know differently. So do some of these interpretations, and that's all they are, points of view, interpretations. Do they keep me from liking this film? No, not at all. I'm still a fan of this film. I'm still a fan of Robert Zemeckis and Michael J. Fox particularly. Marty is a weird protagonist. He doesn't have a hubris here, and he's very uninvolved in why things happen to him, and he makes a mistake, and he tries to correct it, just like the rest of us. And that's why... I like Marty McFly. Before I go, I want to call attention to MichaelJFox.org, which is home to Team Fox. Team Fox is an organization you can donate money to or fundraise for or participate in to find a cure for Parkinson's disease. I am not a member of Team Fox, nor do I receive anything from Team Fox or the Michael J. Fox Foundation. And this is not a paid advertisement. Out of time. Thanks for hanging out with me the last couple of hours. I hope you found this interesting, whether you watched Back to the Future with commentary or just listened in your car. The Super 70 Podcast is brought to you by Dylan Davis. That's me. You can find me, my podcast, my books, and my blogs at www.thatdillandavis.com where you can leave a comment under the Super 70 Podcast tab. The Super 70 Podcast is available on SoundCloud and iTunes. All music on this podcast was written and recorded by Rosalind McPhail. You can reach her at www.rosalindmcphail.com. Check out her SoundCloud and her other projects. If you're offended by the interpretation of this film, please let me know by sending me an email at thatdillandavis at gmail.com. If you like the podcast, please express this on iTunes or SoundCloud by leaving a rating and a review. You can also find me on Twitter at thatdillandavis and find my books on amazon.com. This is Dylan Davis, and next time we'll meet in the New York Public Library.